how many of you sneeze loudly and are proud to admit it? As, as, a, as a loud sneezer myself, I have a hard time understanding quiet sneezers. And, and you know who you are. You know who you are. Because look, when, when, I, when I feel a sneeze coming on, I don't fight it. You know why? Because I believe my body is telling me that there's something inside of me that needs to get out, right? Amen? Such was the case for this man, Steve Easton. Steve lives in England, and several years ago, he, he was overcome with a sneezing fit and, quote, a very uncomfortable sensation. He believed there was something in him that needed to get out. And you know what? He was right. Because when he sneezed, this came out. Not the penny, but the thing next to it. You know what that is? It's a rubber sucker. And actually, he's holding it in the previous picture there. Now, at first, Steve couldn't figure out what it was. Then he phoned his mom. And when he did, she instantly remembered that it was a rubber sucker that got lost, get this, more than 40 years ago. That's right. That rubber sucker had been stuck in Steve's nasal passage for over 40 years. Can I, let's, let's bring it together here, people. Bring it back, okay? Listen, okay? You see, Steve's mom had taken Steve to the hospital at the age of seven or eight, suspecting, he was playing with the toy, suspecting that he had swallowed the sucker from a dart. Speaking to the BBC, Steve's mom said this, quote, I was really worried, so I took him to the hospital, and they x-rayed him and checked everything, and they couldn't find it. Now, all these laters, she says, it suddenly shot out. Can you imagine having something stuck inside you for over 40 years and you don't even know it? Can you imagine? You know, you know Faith, some things, as this story illustrates, some things can go undetected in our lives, can't they? perhaps even something for over 40 years, like a rubber sucker. But you know, it's one thing to have a toy piece go undetected inside you for a long period of time. However, there are some things that are far more dangerous, and I'm not simply talking about foreign objects. Indeed, what is arguably the most dangerous item that can be stored within us is a rebellious spirit towards God. And woe to the person 
who fails to detect that. For about a year now, we've been working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. And this morning, we're going to be studying 2 Samuel chapter 20. In the book of 1 Samuel, God had appointed David to be the king of his people. And as we've seen since that time, David's reign has been marked with difficulty. And this is what most of 2 Samuel has been about, right? For example, in the previous chapters, David's son Absalom led a revolt against his father. Yet as we saw in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, David's men defeated Absalom. So now there's once again peace in the kingdom. Well, in our passage this morning, David returns to Jerusalem to once again rule as God's king. Yet just when we think the worst is behind us for David, someone else rises up against David again. And to be honest, this passage that we're about to read, it's almost wearying. Because here we are again, another rebellion, another person rising up in rebellion against God's anointed king. But in many ways, this is the human story. The human story is one of ongoing rebellion against God. You see, friend, as our Creator, God is the rightful judge and Lord over all creation, and that includes you and me. And what the Bible makes abundantly clear is that God calls all people in all places, please hear me, to submit and follow His appointed King. For those in 2 Samuel 20, the king of that time was David. But for you and me today, it's the greater son of David, the one whom David points to, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture makes it clear, all people in all places are called to turn from living for themselves and instead, please hear me, trust, follow, and submit to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus of Nazareth. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is this. How can you know, how can I know, if there is a rebellious spirit in our hearts against this King of kings and the Lord of lords? How can you know if you do in fact have rebellion in your heart towards Christ? Because, friend, even more than a rubber sucker, a rebellious spirit can be really hard to detect. So how do you know if it's in you? Well, I believe our text this morning helps answer that question. If you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 20. That's page 272 in that paperback Bible in the 
seat in front of you if you need one. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. As I, as I mentioned a moment ago, David has returned from exile. Uh, the tribe of Judah has brought him back, which oddly enough made the other ten tribes of Israel angry. Keep in mind, these other tribes, they had supported the rebel Absalom just a few chapters earlier. Yet now these tribes, these ten tribes of Israel, they are jealous that they're being excluded from bringing David back to Jerusalem. So there's this conflict. And as one, one commentator put it, a modern-day analogy would be a younger sister who sulks over being denied the privilege of being a maid of honor and consequently tries to ruin the wedding for the entire family. Okay, that, That's what's happening here with Judah and Israel. Israel is that younger sister. She just wants to ruin it for everybody. And as we're about to see, there is one who leads the charge in trying to ruin not a wedding, but in fact God's kingdom. And faith, as, as we look at this another episode of people rising up in rebellion against God's anointed king, I want to invite us, and I want you to consider to see if you see in your heart any of the traits that we see of these rebellious characters. Right? And if so, that we would get it out of us. So following your copy of God's Word as I read 2 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. We read this. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and he said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now let's pause here for a moment. You know what's so great about these opening verses? You know what's so great? We don't have to guess who the bad guy is. Right? Tell me, who's the bad guy? Sheba, right? And notice what he says. He claimed that there was nothing in David's kingdom for Israel. That is, he's saying that God's promises, his saving promises, all his promises aren't found in God's anointed king, David. This is what he's getting at when he says, we have no inheritance. So Sheba calls Israel to effectively succeed from David's kingdom. And notice, many of them do. Now, while Sheba is calling people to abandon David, look at what David is doing. Look with me at verse 3. We read this, And David came to his house in Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines who he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them. But he did not go into them. So they were shut up or secured until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now, do you recall, as we've been working our way through the book of Second Samuel, do you recall what Absalom did 
to these ten concubines a few chapters earlier. Right? These are the concubines he slept with to proclaim his power. You know, the whole pitching the tent on the roof thing, right? He did that as a sign that he had grabbed the throne from his father David, just like Amnon had grabbed Tamar in chapter 13. But notice what David does in this text. He's protecting them and making sure they are adequately provided for. Also previously, we have noted in David that he was a man who had no self-control in regards to his lusts and his sexual appetites. But the text makes it very clear that he doesn't allow those to be indulged, does he? Instead, notice what he's doing here is he's taking responsibility for the welfare of these concubines. As several commentators have pointed out, such actions sent the message that David was both back in charge and he was back in charge as a husband and a guardian for the people of Israel. Now, once David has everything in order in his palace, he now goes to this task of ending this Sheba-like rebellion. Look at verse 4. Let me read this. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. Now remember, Amasa, he was the commander of Absalom, but David put him in charge as a, as a way to kind of reunify the kingdom. So he gives them this task. Verse 5, So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do to us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. So Amasa, for whatever reason, we don't know the reason, he's delaying. So David's like, okay, Abishai, Abishai is related to Joab, says to Abishai, this is what I want you to do. Forget Amasa, I want you to go after Sheba. That's the command. That's what he should have done. Now notice what we see here in verse 7. And there went out from him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now let's just pause here for a second. Okay? Why do you think it is that the author would, would mention this stone at Gibeon? It seems like a rather random detail, right? Why add that? Well, do you remember what significant event happened earlier at Gibeon? This was a location in 2 Samuel 2 where Abner, the commander of Saul's son Ishbosheth at that time, Abner took his men over to meet Joab, the commander of David's men at that time, in order to intentionally provoke Joab and David's men. Remember this? And Abner suggested that 12 of his men and 12 of Joab's men, they engage in a competition, something akin to a medieval tournament in which the knights proved themselves. Remember this? And you remember what happened? 
the tournament turned deadly. All 24 men died. And do you remember how they died? Does anyone remember how they died? They all died through the wound in their belly. They died being struck in the belly. Indeed, shortly after that, upon hearing that David welcomed Abner in peace, do you remember what Joab did? Joab killed Abner. And do you remember how he killed Abner? Guess. Stab in the stomach. Remember, all the deaths, all the murders in 2 Samuel 2 and 3 had to do with a blow to the belly at Gibeon. So if we're reading 2 Samuel carefully, the mention of Gibeon should bring this history to mind. I wonder, wonder, wonder what's going to happen next when Joab meets Amasa. Let's look there in verse 8. When they're, and they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now, jo- by the way, oh, I'll just keep reading. Okay. <laughs> now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Now, what is Joab a novice when it comes to being a warrior? Okay, do, do you think that he's the kind of guy that when he's walking around in soldier's gear, his stuff's just going to accidentally fall out of his, his sheaths and stuff? Do you? No, not at all. It, the author is assuming we're intelligent. Thank you, author. Right? He's not, he's not... So as we read this, it falls out. We can know that Joab is allowing this to happen, or even he's intending for his sword or his dagger to fall on the ground. Because notice what happens next. As he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. So, so, so do you see the picture here? Right? He, here, here you have him, right? He's, he's going up to greet. The sword comes down. But as he's going to greet him, he picks up the sword without him knowing, and he stabs and kills him. Now, let me ask you. Was this what David instructed Abishai and Joab to do? Yes or no? No. David instructed him to go and pursue who? Sheba. Yet what just happened here? Joab decided to take matters into his own hands, didn't he? This is to say he had complete disregard for David and thought it would be best if he killed Amasa. Now, is Joab loyal to David? Yes. But he is unsubmissive to his orders. 
So he kills Amasa. And notice how he does it. He does it the same way that he killed Abner, stabbing him in the stomach. As I mentioned to you before, and I was telling my boys this last night that they were going to enjoy the story, because uh, the Bible is not G-rated. And indeed, the details emphasize how it's not G-rated. Tell me, what hand does Joab use to greet and kiss Amasa? What hand? The right hand. That's an important detail. Because at that time, the right hand was the one which a soldier used to do battle. So the fact that Joab goes up to Amasa with his right hand open to greet him would have implied, and Amasa would have know, there's no threat here. He's greeting me with his right hand. It, like with Abner and Absalom, Joab kills Amasa. Now notice the response of David's men. Look at verses 11 and following. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. Anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into a field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. This past Wednesday, I was out uh, driving with my family. However, we were delayed because there was a big traffic buildup here on 42, right in front of Hunting Creek. And you know why all the traffic was stopped? It's because a car had gone off the road, crashed into the fence, and was almost in the pond there in the Sutherland subdivision, right? Everyone stopped and couldn't help but stop to see what had happened. Well, that, that's the same thing we see happening in these verses, isn't it? Right? Everyone slowed down to see how Amasa had been killed. So notice, they moved the, the dead body, and now the chase is on to get Sheba. But I want you to notice how Sheba has really been in the background this whole time, and the person who's really been brought to the forefront is Joab. In fact, the men say, if you're for David, follow who? Joab, right? And Joab no doubt believed that. Now notice what we see here in verse, beginning in verse 14. And Shebai passed through all the tribes of Israel of Abel to Beth Mechrah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him at Abel of Beth Mechah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. So Joab and his men are coming upon the city. They're banging down the walls. But who does the text say speaks up? A what? A wise woman. Now, is this the first time we've encountered a wise woman in 2 Samuel? No. 
Earlier, Joab, the very guy who's banging down the walls of the city to get Sheba, Joab employed a wise woman, the woman of who? The woman of who, remember? Tekoa, an attempt to manipulate David not to execute Absalom. Remember this? And do you remember what the woman of Tekoa said? Now, I mean, she said a lot of things. But one of the things she said is that David should not execute Absalom because to do so would destroy the heritage of God. Which was not true. Now notice, another wise woman appears in our text. This time, it's, listen, to save her city from the destructive forces of Joab. And take note about what she's, she's going to say here. Like the woman of Tekoa, she too draws upon this heritage theme in order to persuade Joab. Yet unlike the woman of Tekoa, her reasoning is true. Look at verse 17. She says, And he came here, Joab, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the, word, your, the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former days, Let them ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. And we all say, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> right. The reader cannot help but laugh that Joab is saying, oh, I'm not the kind of person who would kill people. I'm not the kind of person that would tear down a city. Yes, you are. But notice what he goes on to say, Joab. He replies, this is not true, meaning it's not true that um, there's going to be destruction. He says, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown down to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now, this, this woman is called what? A wise woman. And you know why she is wise? It's because she knew and applied the word of God. How do we know this is the case? We know this is the case because her appeal to Joab is based off the procedure listed in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 and 11. She knew that text. She knew God's words well. And that text states that a besieged city, just like this one, should be given the chance to propose terms before it's destroyed in battle. So notice, a deal is struck. Sheba for the city. And Sheba's head comes flying over the city wall. Right? And I want you to notice, and the manner of his death is important. As many commentators have pointed out, the fate of Sheba mirrors the fate of Abimelech in Judges 9. Abimelech was kind of the, 
the archetypal self-appointed king who created, who only created trouble. In many ways, he's kind of like an anti-king. And Abimelech died when a woman dropped a stone on his head from a tower. Now Sheba dies when a woman arranges to have his head thrown over the wall from the fortress. And friend, please hear me. This is the fate of those who rebel against God's king. Now notice how the author concludes this chapter. In the following verses, David's officials are listed, a sign that order has been restored. And if you're the note-taking type, this, this list is very similar to the one in 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18. However, the author wants us to notice there's one glaring, obvious thing missing from this list. And you know what it is? There's no mention that David is in charge. Because notice what we see in verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelophites. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Last month, a seasoned Hollywood screenwriter was interviewed about some of his work. Now, I had to be really honest with you. I have little interest in what anyone from Hollywood has to say. However, the screenwriter did say something that caught my interest, and you know what that was? He said, there is one thing you will rarely, if ever, see on a TV sitcom. You know what that is? Pet cats. Just think about it. Besides Garfield, who's an animated character, pet cats almost never appear in a TV sitcom. And you know why? Because as a TV screenwriter states, quote, they never listen to instruction. <laughs> they only do what they want to do, which he goes on to say, which of course makes it impossible to do any kind of filming with cats. Now, does this surprise any of us? especially those who, who have a cat, right? Cats simply do what they want to do when they do it, right? Well, notice that's, that's honestly what we see happening in this passage. Like cats, the main characters in this text, they're just doing their own thing. Most significantly, I want you to see that it's not simply Sheba who chooses to rebel against God's king. Notice it is also Joab. In fact, in a supremely understated way, the structure of the narrative shows us that Joab is also a rebel against God's king. Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis echoes what many commentators have observed. He keenly writes this. He says, Could it be that 2 Samuel 20 depicts a double rebellion? There is Sheba, who wants to leave the Davidic kingdom behind. And then there is Joab, who will not be controlled within the kingdom, but is ever hacking and slicing away to keep his own position unrivaled. He goes on. There is a spillover principle. 
quoting Jesus, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then he says this, there is such a thing as acknowledging the king's sovereignty and disregarding his will. Such folks will have no place in the kingdom at last. There are scores of Joab on our church membership rolls. You see, Faith, I believe the narrative of 2 Samuel 20, especially with its emphasis on Joab, it underscores this important biblical truth, and that is this, and that is God's king is to be obeyed, not simply acknowledged. God's king is to be obeyed. We are to submit to him in every area of life. Not just simply acknowledge that he exists. Friend, you can rebel against God's king in two ways. One is what we see in Sheba, outward defiance. Then there's the rebellion of Joab, a rebellion that acknowledges God's kings, but chooses to live for himself instead. You see, Faith, in many ways, this text is like the story of the prodigal sons in Luke 15. In that, this passage is less about the one who leaves, Sheba, and more about the one who stays, Joab. Sheba rebelled by wanting to depart from the Davidic kingdom. Joab rebelled by failing to submit to the king while remaining in the kingdom. God's king is to be obeyed, not simply acknowledged. And I wonder, by way of application, if some of you might be living like Joab. You know about Jesus. You acknowledge him as the rightful king. Indeed, you are even loyal to his church and his mission. But yet, like Joab, that's where it ends. There's no submission to his authority. There's no zeal to obey his commands. There's simply an acknowledgement of him as the rightful king. And then, like Joab, you simply live for you. You, if I could say this, you're kind of like an uncontrolled cat. In fact, is that true of you? Indeed, has, has this rebellious spirit been in you longer than 40 years like a rubber sucker? Friend, if, if, if ever reading this, if you're finding yourself identifying with Joab, if you see this rebellious spirit, no, it's not too late to eradicate that out of your life. Or perhaps some of you have been living like Sheba. You're familiar with God's king, and perhaps you've maybe even grown up in church. But like Sheba, you believe, you think there's nothing for you in God's king. You've come to believe life is best lived as far away, distant from King Jesus as much as possible. This is to say, 
you are in outright rebellion and you know it. Friend, likewise, it is not too late to repent and to turn to God's king for life. As some of you might have noticed, the title from the sermon is a title of a John Mellencamp song. I fight authority. And you remember how the chorus goes? I fight authority, authority always reigns. I fight authority, authority always reigns. Friend, there is no higher authority than God's king. And as Sheba's demise makes clear, as well as Joab's later on in 1 Kings chapter 2, God's king, the highest authority, he always wins. Friend, your rebellion, my rebellion, our willful disobedience earns us condemnation from God. Indeed, due to our sin, we all come into this world under judgment for our sin. Yet to all the Joabs and the Shebas, which is you and me, God's ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done something neither David nor any other of David's sons could do. And you know what that was? Jesus Christ died and rose again to forgive you of your rebellious spirit and to make you right with God. Amen? Friend, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, God's Son, lived the perfect, submissive, obedient life you and I have failed to live. Then He willingly went to the cross to absorb the condemnation you and I are owed for our rebellious spirits. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and proving himself who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And friend, here's the incredible offer of Scripture. Forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, the joy of being in a relationship with God and having God himself can all be yours simply by faith. Please hear me. Salvation is received, not achieved. Jesus did all the work necessary to save you, a rebellious sinner, and to bring you into his kingdom. All that is required of you is repentance and faith. Friend, have you done that? Has there been a moment in your life where you've admitted to God that you are rightly under his judgment for your sin, that you are in need of saving? And then have you trusted that Christ and Christ alone paid it all? Please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying to you, do better. I am not saying to you, be more righteous. Friend, if you are a sinner, which we all are, there's only one way to be forgiven, and that is to trust the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Faith alone have you done that? Because tomorrow, friend, is not promised. Let the day be, let today be the day of salvation for you. And for those of you who do belong to King Jesus, I want to invite you, as I've been inviting myself this week, I encourage you, examine your heart. Where are you failing to submit to King Jesus? 
Like Job, are there any matters that you're taking into your own hands? Oh, let us, let us be a church that gets rid of such rebellion through confession and repentance. Indeed, may we be people who seek to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in each and every moment of our lives. Amen? Let's pray.